Hello, and welcome to A Health Podacy. In my own experience, I knew it wasn't illegal for an Indian to become a doctor, but it didn't seem real until I actually met one. So it's just so important to establish role modeling opportunities. I'm your host, Alan Weil. Indigenous populations face widespread persistent shortages of healthcare providers, and these shortages are linked to limited access to care, higher rates of chronic health conditions, and other access problems. Native doctors are more likely than non-native doctors to serve native patients. So increasing the number of native doctors is a key strategy for improving access to this poorly served population. Now nationally, American Indian or Alaska native students make up only 1% of medical school students. But the numbers are really different at the University of North Dakota's medical school, where one in 10 students in 2020 were American Indian or Alaska Native, the highest ratio in the country. Today, we're talking about the Indians in Medicine program at the University of North Dakota Medical School, which was featured in the February 2021 issue of Health Affairs as part of our Leading to Health series. I'm joined by Donald Warren, the director of the program and a professor training the next generation of indigenous healthcare research and policy leaders. Launched in 1973, the program has since recruited, supported, and trained 250 American Indian doctors. And in 2019, the university launched the country's first PhD program in indigenous health. We'll discuss the origins of the program and what it sets out to accomplish. Dr. Warren, welcome to the program. Thanks so much. Very good to be here. Well, let's jump right into this incredible work that you've done. Uh, Talk to us just at the outset about the program that's profiled in the piece that we published. So at University of North Dakota in the School of Medicine and Health Sciences, we've had a very long-standing program called INMED or Indians into Medicine. And as you had mentioned, it started in 1973. And over those number of years, we've been able to graduate over 250 American Indian Alaska Native physicians. But the, the program is so much more than just the, the medical program. We actually have a summer institute in which we bring in middle school and high school students to spend six weeks with us here on campus. And they get to know a little bit more about staying in a dorm and being on a a college campus. And they take courses in biology, chemistry, physics, math, and communications. So we keep them very busy during that time frame, but we have uh, cultural events and social events on nights and weekends. And we know it's been very successful because the vast majority of students who complete the Summer Institute apply to come back again in future years. So we've been working really middle school through medical school, trying to promote the next generation of American Indian health professionals. And as you mentioned, we also have a public health component as well. So I love how diversified this is. You start with, I don't want to call it narrow, but a specific issue, more doctors, and you've broadened out fields and you've broadened out age groups. Talk to me about the importance of having American Indian representation in the field of medicine. Why is this such a critical topic? We know through the data that are collected by the Association of American Medical Colleges that American Indian physicians are, not surprisingly, much more likely to work in American Indian populations. 
And due to underfunding of Indian Health Service and related programs, as well as poverty in a lot of our communities, we have a real difficult time having fully staffed hospitals and clinics in the Indian Health System. So we know that one solution, one part of the solution to addressing our disparities is addressing the workforce disparities. So it's just vitally important to increase the numbers of American Indian providers because they are much more likely to go into the communities where they are needed the most. So I don't think most medical schools spend a lot of time thinking about middle schoolers. Talk to me about the evolution of a program, as you say, that middle school to medical school, but you started at the top and then moved, as they say, upstream. What took you there? If a medical school was interested in increasing enrollments of American Indians, if you're just looking for recent graduates with high MCAT scores, you will not be successful because we have to work further upstream to increase the numbers of people who are even going to college. So one of the challenges that we face, particularly here in the Northern Plains, I'm originally from South Dakota at the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation, and I work here in North Dakota. But one commonality across many of our communities is that the high school dropout rates are over 50%. So in many of our reservation communities, less than half the kids graduate from high school. So that means the pool of potential college students is even smaller. And then the pool of potential pre-meds is even smaller. And then the the numbers who actually get into medical school are just uh, terribly low. So one of our big challenges is American Indians. We are the minority of the minority populations, but we are also the most underrepresented of the underrepresented minority populations. So if one wanted to increase the numbers of American Indian physicians, you can't start at the pre-med level and just assume you're going to have a huge pool of applicants. You have to go further upstream and really nurture those students who are interested in the health sciences and to facilitate opportunities for them to grow their academic skills. And you did that by reaching out to the schools and saying, we can't succeed if you don't succeed. What, what did it, how did those first conversations go? So this has been going on uh, since uh, uh, prior to my joining InMed. So InMed started again in 1973. So we're coming up on the 50 year anniversary of InMed. So uh, people who were involved in the program before I joined actually did some of that initial engagement. And one of the things that we're very proud of is that we have a tribal advisory board. And in the 1970s, the priority states were North Dakota, South Dakota, Nebraska, Montana, and Wyoming. And there's very few medical school opportunities uh, in this region of the country. So we have appointed tribal officials from each of the communities in those five states who serve as our advisory board. And we follow a lot of their recommendations and they are one of the entities that recognizes we have to work further upstream to nurture the next generation of college graduates and future medical students. So this has been going on for a number of years and I am really proud of our advisory board and that genuine connectivity that we have with tribal communities across the country. You know, when you talk about the high dropout rates, I have to think part of it is young people not seeing a future and you're giving them a picture of a future that's probably quite different from what they imagined, quite different from what they see every day. And probably until you showed it to them, truly unimaginable in the literal sense of the word, they wouldn't even know what it looks like. 
Yeah, and I can speak to this from personal experience. So when I was in grade school, we actually moved to Arizona. And uh, so I was, I was fortunate to go to schools in uh, the Phoenix area, basically, and had opportunities. But I was doing well in college. I was at Arizona State University back in the 1980s. And the pre-med advisor was really focused on trying to diversify the numbers of uh, minority individuals going into medicine. So he reached out to me and asked if I'd ever considered becoming a pre-med. And honestly, my first question was, are there any American Indian physicians? I had never met one. And I think if you're from the majority society, you probably don't realize the full impact of role models. I think if all of the doctors, teachers, principals, and professionals you've, you've met are from your race or ethnicity, then anything seems possible. But if you haven't seen those role models, it doesn't really feel possible. So in my own experience, I knew it wasn't illegal for an Indian to become a doctor, but it didn't seem real until I actually met one. So I think it's, imp it's, it's just so important to establish role modeling opportunities and also recognizing Quite honestly, it is not easy to be a nerd on the reservation. We don't have uh, these types of support systems and, and academic systems that we take for granted in cities or suburbs. And many of our students are doing well in school. Quite often their peers discourage them. So we have to create a cohort of uh, support systems for these students who want to go into these professions. I want to turn to a slightly different area of, your, of, of what's described in the piece which is how the education focuses on indigenous populations and, and how potentially some of the practices of, sort of Western clinical medicine may uh, not meet the needs of that population very well. So this isn't about getting people into school. This is about what they're learning. Talk a little bit about how the sort of traditional medical school or other uh, types of education that your programs cover uh, need to have a different focus when they're thinking about indigenous populations. Well, I'm very fortunate here at this medical school. I wear a number of hats. In addition to being the director of the InMed program and director of the public health program, I'm also associate dean of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And part of our efforts toward promoting diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, include things like cultural awareness uh, components to our curriculum, as well as recognizing that there's more than one way to uh, visualize medicine and to practice medicine and recognizing that there are cultural factors that have an impact on the practice of medicine and health-related behaviors in our communities. So we should be cognizant of those things and we should be supportive of, of practices that are meeting the holistic health needs of the populations that we work with. So, for example, we know that in many of our traditional indigenous systems of medicine, we incorporate a much more holistic approach, recognizing that spiritual and cultural healing, mental and emotional health are vitally important, not just physical health. And we recognize that as physicians, we're saying right up front, we deal in the physical arena. Physician and physical have the same Latin root, physic, meaning the natural sciences. But in indigenous ways, it's much more broad than that. And we recognize the role of culture and ceremony and language and connectivity to our, our past and to our ancestry has a huge impact on health-related behavior and sense of well-being. So we're much more holistic in that approach. And on the medical side, of course, we have to meet all of the standards and make sure that our students pass all the nationally standardized exams. Uh, so we, we do incorporate those things. 
but also on the public health side, we're able to do much more of the culturally focused aspects of health. We're going to take a quick break before I come back and continue my conversation with Dr. Donald Warren. To keep up with the rapidly changing healthcare landscape, you need the gist of the news. I'm Alex Olgan, host of the Gist Healthcare Daily podcast. I put the top healthcare policy and business headlines into context each weekday morning in 10 minutes or less. You can subscribe to Gist Healthcare Daily wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back, and I'm speaking with Dr. Donald Warren about a program that he runs at the University of North Dakota, building a better infrastructure for indigenous populations to learn medicine and public health and practice in those fields. I want to turn to another dimension of this. You talked about the access supply problem, the limited number of uh, practitioners, clinicians. One of the things I was struck by in the piece is that there isn't just a numbers problem. There's also a turnover issue, which is that various programs exist to bring people into the Indian Health Services. I don't know this for a fact, but I bet there are some loan forgiveness incentives and things like that. But presumably, those are mostly people who cycle through, whereas you're training a cohort that potentially might stay. And that has implications for trust and relationships and care. Can you tell me a little bit more about that dimension of what you're doing to serve this population? Yes, and that's exactly right. Through Indian Health Service, we have options for any provider. We have uh, loan uh, repayment programs, similar to what you might find in National Health Service Corps or with um, National Institutes of Health, for example. There's an IHS loan repayment program. If you work for a couple of years, you can have a significant portion of your uh, medical school loans forgiven. In addition, for American Indian students, there is a scholarship program uh, through the IHS. Of course, that's terrible underfunded, so it does not meet all of the needs in terms of the shortages in the workforce. So what we've observed, particularly with the loan repayment programs, is that quite often people will do their obligation for loan repayment uh, and then leave the the IHS. And in some ways, it's understandable. If people are not from a rural, impoverished, indigenous community, it's hard to stay there long term. So that's why growing our own is so vitally important. And what we observe is that people who are from the communities in which they are working are much more likely to stay there. And of course, these aren't absolutes. We have plenty of non-American Indian healthcare providers who dedicate their entire careers to working in our communities. And we have uh, American Indian physicians who go work in the suburbs. <laughs> so there's there's a lot of variability. But the trend is that American Indian providers are much more likely to go to work in reservation communities and to stay there for their careers. Now, it takes a lot of partners to make this work. You already mentioned the tribal leaders. You've got the Indian Health Service, which has a role, and of course, the university as well. Uh, The program's been around for a while, so you're not sort of in startup mode. But if you were talking to someone interested in replicating your success somewhere else, what would you tell them they need from these various other partners? Well, we have been very fortunate in North Dakota is that there was a a senator named Quentin Burdick many, many years ago, and he was able to get funding for the InMed program at UND, part of the Indian Health Service recurring budget. So we are a line item in the budget. So quite honestly, that does give us a significant advantage to have that base funding. 
So the, the funding we get through Indian Health Service, at least to date, is about $700,000 a year to support all these programs. Of course, it's not enough to support everything, um, but it's wonderful to have that base funding for, for the programmatic issues. But we also uh, pursue other grants. Uh, there's a lot of workforce-related funding through other federal programs like HRSA, the Health Resources and Services Administration, and we're also pursuing private sector grants as well. Uh, lately, one of our big areas of priority is to try to establish a scholarship fund. So many of our students, uh, really the limiting factor in going to medicine is is not having enough scholarship resources. So many of our students come from very low resource areas and are impoverished. So the idea of taking on a $100,000 or $200,000 in debt is just daunting and insurmountable in many cases. So we're working on developing endowed scholarship funding for the students. And I'd say any other university interested in doing this, one of the most important things you could do is increase the numbers of American Indian faculty members. Um, you can't just say we want students, you also have to invest in faculty and staff so that they have a landing spot that feels much more at home. I'm really interested in the PhD program. So, you know, we think of clinical medicine and we've talked a little bit about meeting the needs of indigenous populations, but what's the research agenda for someone pursuing a PhD? Just in my own experience, so I am a physician, also have training in public health, and I finished medical school back in 1995, so quite a long time ago, and I've been working in Indian health ever since then. And in my own observation, of course, we have a shortage of medical providers, but we also have a shortage of public health professionals, and we also, I think in many ways, have not invested appropriate resources into even asking the right research questions. And I think that people who don't have the lived experience in reservation communities probably have their own assumptions and don't necessarily understand the limitations or this, the real world challenges of trying to promote health in our communities. So we do have the Indigenous Health MPH specialization for public health programming, but at the PhD level, what we recognize is that we need to broaden our research agenda. It needs to be community-based, community-driven research priorities, but we also have to ask the right questions. In one of my previous roles, I was a staff clinician with NIH, the National Institutes of Health, and was doing diabetes research. And it was remarkable to me how often the researchers who are very well educated were not even asking the right questions because they don't know what it's like to live in a reservation community. So what I'm hoping to see through the PhD is that we have cohorts of well-trained public health academics who can work effectively with communities in a culturally relevant manner, but address the real world health challenges that we see in our populations. And we're not going to do that with just simple bench science. You know, the, the, the challenge of diabetes in Indian country is not that we don't have enough insulin in the pharmacy. That's not the problem. It's much further upstream and it's much more holistic and comprehensive. And we have to be smarter about where we put our research efforts. That's really fascinating. And we're working, of course, at Health Affairs in diversifying our own content and authors. And this is just uh, right up the same direction. We're going realizing that uh, who does the work and who funds the work defines what the questions are. And if there are questions that we've been answering poorly or not even asking, uh, we're, we're just never going to get there. Well, look, the program's been around for a while, but I am struck by how much it's evolved from its 
modest origins. Look ahead. Tell me where you'd like to see this go. What are your goals? Well, I would love to see our MD and PhD, and we have a, a couple of students interested in the MD-PhD dual degree. So it could be an in-med medical student and an Indigenous health PhD student. We need to diversify the faculty ranks at American medical colleges. Um, I'd ask your listeners, guess how many American Indians are the dean of a medical school? And the answer is zero. There are zero American Indian medical school deans in 2021. That's pathetic. And that's really an indictment on the field of academic medicine that we haven't diversified leadership or faculty ranks. In terms of associate deans, I'm one of two. There are only two American Indian associate deans at medical schools. That's not a pat on the back. Again, that's an indictment on the field. So we also need more uh, faculty members who are on tenure track. We need more full professors. I'm one of only 16 American Indians who are full professors at medical schools. This is out of 40,000 professors of medicine. So, so I would say that in the future, we need to build those skill sets. And I know that academic medicine is incredibly challenging. So in addition to uh, improving the workforce for primary care in our reservation communities, if we're going to build medical schools that are welcoming and understanding of the unique needs of tribal uh, citizens, we need to diversify the ranks of academic medicine. So in the future, I would love to see uh, significant diversification and more American Indians in academic medicine and conducting research with the communities. Well, it's uh, so great to have an opportunity to learn from you about what you're doing. I think your ambitions sound attainable uh, with a lot of hard work, but the, it's nice to hear you speak of a vision that we could all say, yes, that's something we, we could get there. And wouldn't the world be a better place? Wouldn't the country be a better place if if we did. So I wish you all the best of luck in the continuing work, but mostly I'm just honored to have been able to hear from you about what you've been doing and uh, learn from your experience. It's really a wonderful program and I'm proud that we were able to publish a piece on it. Yeah, and I really appreciate the opportunity to, to share our program and some of these ideas. We're not always included in the discussion, so I, I genuinely appreciate this opportunity. Well, Dr. Warren, thank you so much for being a part of a health policy. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, I hope you'll tell a friend about a health policy. Health Policy is produced by Health Affairs, the leading journal for health policy research. The team behind the show includes Patty Sweet, Jeff Byers, Brian Dobbs, Julia Vivolo, Sarah Kolk, and Sue Ducat. Like the show? Subscribe to A Health Podacy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Thanks for listening, and have a great morning, day, or evening. <laughs>